like packaging of Glossier, which looked really current and clean and kind of fashion-y. And the price point, which was like more expensive than a drugstore, but cheaper than a department store, it all kind of clicked into place. I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Danny James, and we're reporters at Retail Dive. This is our podcast where we look into the biggest retail trends shaping the industry. We talk about what traditional retailers are up to, what's happening in the DTC space, and everything in between. Plus, we'll be talking to some industry experts along the way. This is The Backroom. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. This is Danny, and I'm here with a special guest today. I'm joined by journalist and author Marissa Meltzer. She's covered beauty, fashion, and more for over a decade now, and she's just recently come out with a new book, which is a hot topic in the industry. We'll be discussing it today, and it's called Glossy, Ambition, Beauty, and the Inside Story of Emily Weiss's Glossier. Marissa, thanks so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And and I know a lot of our listeners, you know, are on the business side of retail. So they'll probably know Glossier a lot already. But as a brief introduction, I know the brand was founded in 2014 by Emily Weiss, stems from her popular beauty website. I remember it very well. It's called Into the Gloss. And the company's previously had a billion dollar valuation. So pretty well-known beauty brand in the industry. And your new book dives in deep on Emily Weiss, and how she started the brand and where it is today. So excited to get started. And Marissa, if you don't mind, I'd love to start the conversation by just asking, what made you want to write a book specifically about Emily Weiss and Glossier, as opposed to the thousands of other brands out there? Well, it sort of started as a broader book about beauty, um, because I was obsessed with the beauty industry as someone who reported on it, but also kind of slowly came to the realization that people who weren't in beauty or fashion or perhaps, you know, women's media didn't really understand the economic power of the industry. But as brands like Rihanna's Fenty and Glossier were becoming more and more sort of part of the mainstream culture conversation, um, I think people were starting to understand that beauty was this thing that really like could fuel um, giant businesses and fortunes. And so I kind of wanted to follow a few different companies and different stages of their kind of arcs. Um, you know, maybe a fledgling company, a celebrity backed company, but Glossier was always the one that I wanted to be kind of like the central, um, storyline because it kind of represented everything that I wanted to talk about. And then as I started writing and reporting, just the Glossier story dwarfed everything else. And I realized that I had to kind of get out of my own way and tell the story of Glossier. And through that lens, talk about, you know, girl bosses and the economic power of the beauty industry and capitalism and feminism and all of those kinds of things. Yeah, I I know in the book you kind of outline looking at a bookstore shelves and noticing that a lot of the books about founders and CEOs are are pretty much all about men. And Emily Weiss was was kind of a new story in that sense. So 
I see a lot of like an, the girl boss inspiration of it within the book and the whole story. It's pretty interesting. And, and I'm curious if you got any pushback about writing specifically about Glossier from either Emily Weiss herself or the brand. Um, well, they were the first um, kind of contact I made once I, you know, decided to go with it because I wanted them on board so badly. I had a professional relationship with Weiss and the brand because I had been reporting on them since before Glossy even existed, you know, when it was just still into the gloss, a beauty blog. And I had written two profiles of Emily Weiss and Glossier. The last one was kind of, it was for Vanity Fair. It was kind of the last big story I had worked on kind of before the pandemic. So it was all very fresh in my mind. So, you know, they, I told them the original idea, which was that it was this book about the beauty industry and I wanted Glossier to be a central part. And they, you know, agreed pretty easily. And then I think that there were some more mixed feelings when they found out that the book was, you know, really going to be about Glossier. And so I realized that what I had to do was just sort of include as much of that without it getting kind of too like insidery and boring, but, you know, kind of talk about that fraught relationship that I had with the company and also just to sort of signal and show that this wasn't um, a hagiography, you know, that I am a journalist and I was trying to take everything into account when writing this account, <laughs> this like, you know, chronicle of this uh, uh, era defining company. And you speak to in the book with, with tons of former employees and classmates of Emily Weiss and other people who worked with her when she was in fashion. I mean, how hard was it as a journalist to, to get all of those inside sources and get their buy-in to, to be quoted? It was, it was medium hard, I guess I would say. <laughs> I think that, you know, if it was easier than if I was working on a similar story for a publication mm-hmm. like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal that doesn't really allow any kind of anonymous quoting for their stories, you know, giving mm. people the option to be, to give their opinions without having to leave their names opens up a lot of opportunity. Um, still, some people, you know, some people didn't respond to my emails at all. Some people said yes and then disappeared. Some people changed their minds. Some people gave me on the record interviews, but they were so bland and boring. Like none of it ended up in the book. Like it's kind of all over the place. Um, but, you know, I I think my sort of process is always just to like leave no stone unturned as much as I can and just talk to people and ask them who they think I should talk to and, you know, certain, you know, like interviewing a retail employee helped open the doors to interviewing a lot more retail employees, you know, like someone will have a good experience talking to you. And I think kind of like clear the way. Um, But it was a little bit weird thinking that there were probably a lot of like former employee group chats or whatever, sussing out whether or not I could be trusted or or anything in the process. It's a strange sensation, but I, I totally get it. 
Oh, yeah. I can imagine everyone texting each other like, should I do this? Should I speak to her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people said that they were doing that. And of course, that's also, you know, what I would do. Right, right. Understandably. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you speak to a lot of insiders in the book and you speak a lot about you, you give a good buildup to, to when Emily Weiss created Into the Gloss and then created Glossier out of that. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can shed some light on what the beauty world was like be- right before Glossier entered it and how it kind of changed it almost permanently. I know as a consumer, a woman in Glossier's demographic, um, it had a huge impact on how it viewed beauty at the time. It was just so different than everything else. So I'm wondering if you can kind of illustrate that for us. Yeah, I would say, okay, so when I was growing up, it was a very top-down way of the beauty industry communicating things. Like, you know, it was a little bit like that famous Devil Wears Prada speech about Cerulean. You know, it was like a designer like um, Chanel, for example, would show the clothes and some of the clothes and the makeup on the runway and those sorts of color palettes would inform a collection of makeup and, you know, whatever celebrities they had signed as, you know, spokespeople would be modeling, you know, the makeup in a department store where you had to go and buy it. And, you know, kind of similar versions of that happened with, um, something like, you know, Maybelline that you could buy in a drugstore or whatever. It was kind of this decided upon, you know, from afar kind of thing. And um, gradually, there was more and more space for like smaller independent brands. I think places like Ulta and Sephora that, you know, carried a lot of different smaller brands sort of helped paved that way. And you also had like social media where um, these makeup influencers were becoming famous, you know, beyond just their YouTube followers. And they were associated with, uh, you know, like contouring kind of that like Kardashian, very like drag influenced makeup, and a lot of artistry and technique and transformation. And that was kind of what was um, all the rage right before Glossier came onto the scene in 2014. And just as every trend is a reflection of what's come before, I think Glossier's makeup aesthetic, which was, they really started more with skincare. So it was just this like easy, comfortable, like nice, um, range of like an easy skincare kind of trio to prep your skin. And then they had a few light products that could just, you know, it's like make your cheeks look like you were blushing a little bit, you know, a little, so a little right. something to keep your brows in place. Like the kind of makeup Very much like that natural you, makeup. Yeah. You, but better, you know, and it was this mm-hmm. idea and it was all, there were no, um, like brushes that they were selling. It was all just stuff that you could kind of like smudge on in a couple minutes and just look a little bit, I don't know, more polished, more fleshed, give yourself that little moment. Um, And I think that was appealing to a lot of people because there was never a messaging that you had to choose. 
one way or another, but it was nice to have some products for just every day or for people like me who I enjoy wearing makeup, but it's not, I don't have to like put it on before I leave the house or I feel naked, but I do like having, you know, I like putting on a little blush. I like putting on, you know, some kind of lipstick before I like go out with friends. I think I'm pretty average in that sort of respect. And I think that felt right to a lot of people and mixed with the kind of um, like packaging of Glossier, which looked really current and clean and kind of fashion-y and the price point, which was like more expensive than a drugstore, but cheaper than a department store, it all kind of clicked into place. Yeah, I think you bring back so many memories for me with like YouTube beauty gurus <laughs> at the time. It was. Yeah, like who did you watch? Like, I, I mean, it was Jeffree Star before Jeffree Star was scandalous and Jacqueline Hill, yeah. all these types of I still people. love Jeffree Star. I can't. I mean, the it. makeup is fantastic. The ma- <laughs> Jeffree Star looks great. But yeah, I mean, at that time, I remember I did my winged black eyeliner every day. And then I went to college okay. and all the it girls were using Glossier from like New York. And I was like, oh, this is like the thing now. Um, And I just remember very clearly seeing like the trend of like the cool New York girls were wearing Glossier. (laughs) So yeah, it had a huge impact. Yeah, it was a very kind of coastal Mm -hmm. New York look because especially it looked a lot of the way that a lot of women in media, which is how Emily Weiss got her start actually wore makeup, which is you'd spend a lot of time and effort on having beautiful skin, either from just taking good care of it or getting facials Mm -hmm. or doing, you know, like sheet masks or whatever. So it was like, if you spend all this time trying to just like look good naturally and drinking water and exercising and everything you're supposed to do to like, you know, look beautiful on your own, why would you then put a ton of like foundation or artificially, you know, contour yourself into, you know, oblivion when you could just put on a little something here and there, you know, as if you were as naturally gorgeous as, you know, Emily Weiss or any of those people. Yeah. I mean, you kind of speak to, I think, something that I found unique about the brand at the time. And I, I still do, which is at the time, it really felt like you were almost getting a little bit of secret information about beauty. This is how I felt about Into the Gloss as well, right? Oh, I felt for like sure. you were getting yeah, an inside it's... peek into the fashion and beauty world and these little secrets everyone had. Yeah, because there was a there was a real intimacy in Into the Gloss. For one thing, Emily took a lot of the photograph- photographs, at mm-hmm. least in the early years herself. So it was a one-woman show of her showing up to someone's bathroom say like Jenna Lyons or something like that and taking photos of her and just sitting there while she talked through products and even if someone like um I don't know like Gucci Westman who was then who's a makeup artist who then was like a Revlon like rep she she might plug one Revlon product but everything else was like stuff she genuinely used ranging from some weird like root cover-up she put on between hair appointments all the way to some like Japanese blush she loved right it was always like an interesting mix of you would see the drugstore products these beauty people were wearing and then Mm -hmm. like 
Dr. Barbara Sturm type products. Like yeah. Really expensive high end. Yeah. I loved that. I also love that like before kind of French girl beauty was codified, mm, it was all mm-hmm. about products that people would be like, oh, I got this like Ombrio cream from a right. pharmacy in Paris on vacation or duty free or whatever. And that kind of had its moment too. And like micellar water and stuff like that, like these things <laughs> that you would buy that weren't expensive, but they were maybe hard to get. And that's where all the kind of cachet was of like, you know, having your friend go on vacation to Europe and giving her a shopping list of like sunscreen and cleansers <laughs> to bring back. I do that with my parents and sunscreen. So yeah, <laughs> I very much relate to that. Yeah, it's funny now it seems so normal for this like natural beauty look and skincare heavy focus. But I remember at the time it was just so fresh and new. It really um, was. Yeah. And They were also coming about the brand at a time when I feel like social media was a big deal for small brands and like these direct to consumer brands. Um, How important do you think social media was for Glossier in terms of growing its audience? Or do you think it was more of like a word of mouth type thing? I think social media was huge. I mean, in particular Instagram, because Into the Gloss came out within like a few months, I want to say, or less than a year of when Instagram originally launched. So Glossier was coming out right as Instagram was starting to be something that, you know, was kind of reaching a critical mass of of people joining it. And so Glossier actually launched on Instagram before it had any products, which now is totally normal, right? Like a brand will tease its existence on Instagram or social media of its choice before it has products to sell. But Glossy was really the first to do that. So it was like, you knew they were coming out with something, but no one really knew what. And there was just these photos of like pink Victorian houses and sunsets and right. deserts and roses and blurry lipstick and Kool-Aid or whatever. And it was so beautiful and intriguing. And so Glossy was helping to create the kind of best practices and aesthetic of Instagram. And also in those early days, it was like kind of novel to follow a a brand and there were less people to follow. So you could, you know, it was easier just to kind of get eyes on you. And um, in the look of Glossier, which was, pale pink and kind Millennial of pink, perfectly yeah. arranged still life, you know, shelfies, like bedside table sort of tableau was uh, very compatible with that kind of clean Instagram aesthetic. So I think the two are really married and the timing was um, really lucky on both of their parts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's so normal now for, like you said, for brands to tease their existence before actually launching. But back in the day, it was like, I didn't even follow any brands on Instagram or Facebook. So yeah, yeah, the, the market's changed for sure. And I know you speak a lot about Weiss's background in the fashion world, which, which we touched on a bit, but I find it so interesting that she comes from this kind of high end, uh, professional background and Mm -hmm. and you know you even say in the book she she wore designer stuff all the time um but glossier 
seems to be, like you said, kind of in that mastige space as opposed mm-hmm. to them being like a high-end like Chanel or Tom Ford beauty brand. So I'm curious, what type of skills or values or teachings do you think Weiss brought from the fashion world into Glossier and how did it shape the company? Yeah, so she worked in fashion at Ralph Lauren as a teenager, mm-hmm. as an intern, and then worked at Teen Vogue and W and assisted um, some stylists. And so I think she understood that even if her own affinity was with designer clothes and kind of, you know, um, uh, kind of ask an aspirational, maybe more expensive world that most people dwelled in a different world where those things were more the realm of fantasy. And so when she created Into the Gloss, it was like this rare peek into how these intriguing women lived and what they used and how some of it, you know, beauty in particular is... um, is a lot more budget friendly. Like even if you're buying, you know, a Tom Ford or Chanel lipstick, it's, it's, it might be a wildly expensive lipstick, but it's still $60 or $50 or something like that. So it's not like you a know, handbag. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that beauty for one is just more democratic in terms of price and also just in terms of, accessibility and inclusivity like you know it there's no sort of body that's not going to fit into beauty um even if they're not like reflected in ad campaigns or something which is its own topic but um and so i and then when she launched glossier a few years later she did an even larger sort of um populist turn which was all of this messaging of like smiliness and you can sit with us. And that was mm. sort of more and more taking away from any sort of like chilly uptown popular girl persona, you know, kind of really uh, bringing the tone down to one of like real friendliness. But, you know, that's also something that didn't always exactly um pan out you know it's hard to actually be that nice to your employees and in person and to everyone's experiences when you're marketing yourself that way well you you segued that nice into my next question because <laughs> i remember they they used to send out i don't know if they still do this but sticker sheets and they had all these like smiley faces and cursive letters yeah. and i always thought it was so cute so yeah they definitely had a friendly vibe, at least to consumers. But to your point, and in the book, I know you speak about, um, you know, some of the turmoil internally at the company, mm-hmm. with its hiring practices and, and it being a bit clicky. And you would know more than I do, but, you know, does some of that click clickness come from the fashion world? I mean, I feel like that exclusivity seems to have carried on into the brand for, for a bit of time. Sure. Fashion world, the media world, but I mean, you know, anywhere there is people and definitely like groups of women, there are going to be cliques, right? There are hierarchies everywhere. And so I think in Glossier, the hierarchies ended up being around a lot of things that are 
you know, somewhat common in like office environments, which is like, how close are you to the founder? You know, like how long have you been there? Are you part of her inner trusted circle? You know, once the company grew so rapidly that, you know, it's like five people. And then a year later, it's like 25 people. And then it's, you know, 50 and 100 and 200 within like, you know, five years or something like that. And so it was like, once you're getting into the realm of like, you're a tech person hired in like 2018 or something like that, you're not necessarily going to be as close and your um, job might not be as understood by some of the longer key members of the staff that, you know, have been that work in marketing or product development or editorial or whatever. And so I think that also informed um, employees experiences a lot. Right. And I think there's almost from my perspective, right, just maybe to your point, these are issues that sometimes happen in all brands um, and all companies to a degree which doesn't diminish the opinions of people who, who felt that they were not included in things. But but yeah, I imagine that Steve Job was a pretty click type guy. <laughs> um, but it seems like there, there's been so much attention on that aspect of Glossier. And do you think that some of that turmoil with the hiring practices and, and diversity issues at the company, do you think some of that is what led to Emily Weiss leaving the CEO position last year? Or do you think there was a lot more to that decision just overall? I think those things all informed it, but I think ultimately Mm -hmm. what it probably came down to was money and leadership. So, Mm -hmm. you know, leadership in terms of her being, you know, unwilling to really give up or delegate enough of her power um, in order to have kind of that like trusted number two role, the way that like Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg kind of, you know, had things where you had this like young visionary founder, and then maybe someone who was a little more experienced, you know, in the nitty gritty details of like the operation of a large company. And they tried that with a lot of people and it just, never took I think because Emily just what it was her baby and it was her obsession and she is a very exacting person and I don't think she really trusted anyone enough to or trusted even her own instincts enough not to constantly want to change her mind and sign off on things and that ended up costing them a lot of money and ultimately that is what um had you know made the board ask her to to step down. Right. You know, the brands had some layoffs recent years, um, pandemic issues for sure, as everybody has. But what do you think has been one of the biggest obstacles for the business in terms of, you know, I feel like it's its core audience originally ha- has gotten older now and Gen Z wasn't initially very tuned into Glossier. So what do you think some of the problems were there? And have they started to to kind of successfully revamp the brand recently to in your opinion they put out so many new products and i know they're now in sephora so do you think they're headed in the right direction yeah i mean i think that they their 
core demographic of fans is definitely getting older. And I don't think that once you're looking for like, I don't know, serums or some sort of more like hardcore anti-aging products, you're probably not going to Glossier for them. I mean, they have a retinol product, which I like, but I, you know, it's like, that's not a whole lot. So you might, you know, some of those people might be, they might be, you know, keeping a cleanser or makeup product or something that they really love, but yeah, they're definitely going to probably age out of some of Glossier products, which is normal. And the other problem is that it's just such, the beauty is such a saturated market. I mean, when like Brad Pitt has his own beauty line, you know that it seems like everyone has launched one. And so just the amount of competition is pretty mind blowing. And not all of those companies will, you know, be able to last, let alone thrive. Um, I do think that Glossier is doing an okay job with Gen Z. If you look at some of the numbers of, you know, visibility and if you just anecdotally go into the stores it seems there's a lot of people in the gen z demographic getting excited about it um the brand does well on tiktok so it's all all the sort of you know it's all there for the brand to be able to kind of survive this plateau slash pivotal moment but it remains to be seen i mean they've kind of spent the last year kind of like rebooting or reintroducing themselves. They reformulated. Right. There's quite a bit of controversy about that. (laughs) Yeah, which a lot of people seem angry about. I don't love the reformulated product myself. And they, as you said, went into Sephora, which was way overdue. Um, And so there will be all, you know, just like a large population of people who you know, maybe never lived close to New York or LA or somewhere that had a Glossier store um, and who weren't necessarily willing, like it's a pretty big ask to have your customer order beauty products without being able to try the color or, you know, the product or anything like that themselves um, or feel it in person. Right. Especially now that they have things like a, like a more opaque concealer and foundation it's it's tough to sell that online yeah i mean it's you know even if they have a very flexible return policy that's i you know i don't think i think maybe once i've ordered a product sight unseen and and every time i've kind of regretted it because you know the lipstick did not look as good on me as it did on my friend or whatever um and so yeah, so there's this potential for people to discover Glossier who haven't before and for them to have, you know, just um, more name recognition and a larger, you know, customer base. But like, you know, we said, they're dealing with totally saturated market, you know, aging out customers, some people being wary of the brand, some people associating the brand with like, you know, oh, that's so five years ago or something like that. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it remains to be seen. Right. And, you know, as you said, it's so saturated now, the market compared to when Glossier first came on the scene. I feel like there's a new minimalist makeup brand every day. Oh, yeah. And I'm curious, do you think 
do we have the potential to see another like true disruptor like Glossier in a market like this where everyone kind of seems the same nowadays and there's so much of it? Do you think it's possible that we'll we'll see another big up and comer uh, shift the industry again? I think that, you know, another big disruptor would probably make bigger waves in a in a different market than beauty. Um, because we've seen so many iterations of seemingly every kind of beauty wellness, you know, kind of brand that it, it would be hard for me to imagine something. The closest that I can think of would be Julie Schott's family of brands where she has Starface, the pimple patch brand and Julie, which was the, um, over the counter, um, emergency contraceptive like plan b alternative or you know plan b version and they just launched smoking cessation products like lozenges that were all with like cunning branding and i saw that to me they feel like a very gen z version of like a procter and gamble or something like that that are sort of doing really interesting <laughs> things in the area of you know, health, wellness, skincare, beauty, and not afraid of being kind of political or edgy or, you know, associating itself with some stuff that's, that can be, you know, less than smiley face, a little bit dark. Yeah. I mean, what a interesting business to, to be creating pimple patches and smoking cessation products <laughs> but yeah their their branding is so bright and very gen z so yeah i think that's that's an interesting example yeah to me what they're doing is really exciting but i think for the next glossier it has to be an industry that's not glossier at least not for a long time there's been so much focus on the beauty industry which i love but um I think that there needs to be a little bit of like a calling and a reckoning of all of those brands before there's space for something to truly dazzle us again. Yeah, there's almost too many. There's too many options sometimes. So it's almost options. overwhelming at this point. But it's it's literally it's very overwhelming. I mean, and you walk the aisles and everything vaguely looks like Glossier. Yes. Yes. I mean. Yeah, we're running out of ideas almost <laughs> in beauty. Yeah. I just feel like we've 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 done the heavy makeup, we've done the natural makeup. I don't know where else it could go, but maybe someone will surprise us. And um, I'm excited to keep watching the brand Glossier, see how it grows and changes. Um, I know your new book, Glossy, it's available now. I read it over the weekend. Highly recommend it. And yeah, Marissa, I really appreciate you joining us today to speak. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for reading it. Of course. Thank you. This episode of The Backroom was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.